Hi there. This is a slightly different episode of The Voices of War. It actually tells my story and the story behind The Voices of War. I was recently interviewed by Pascal Gimperli, who runs the Conflict Transformation Peacebuilding and Security Group that is active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and now YouTube. It was actually quite daunting to be interviewed, rather than doing the interviewing, but Pascal was a really attentive host. He gave me ample time and space to tell a little bit about my story and how The Voices of War came about. We touched on some of my formative experiences, which includes our time as refugees from the war in Bosnia, talked about some questions of identity and walking in multiple worlds, we talked about joining the army, opening of the first CrossFit gym in Bosnia, CrossFit Sarajevo, my exposure to development work, and ultimately, how it all led to the birth of the Voices of War. I had a lot of fun speaking to Pascal, and while slightly unusual, I decided that it's only fair that I share it on the Voices of War. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Hi, Mas. We are on this. Hi, uh, hi Mas. We're on this video today. We will talk about a great podcast. So this is uh, actually the first video we're doing for COPC, the Conflict Transformation Peace Building and Security Network. Um, that has been launched on LinkedIn and now has uh, some other channels that we, we we added to the network. And one of them is YouTube. So it's actually our very first video that we have on YouTube. It's a kind of video podcast, however we want to call it, and uh, with Mass. And um, we connected on LinkedIn. So uh, uh, I saw what you're doing with your podcast, uh, The Voices of War. And then we, we somehow, I don't even remember how it started, we exchanged some messages and then uh, met online and immediately said, no, we have to do something together. Uh, it fits perfectly well with the idea of uh, the CoPC network and the, and the YouTube channel, which is to promote good initiatives uh, as yours, as your podcast. And that's um, a very good opportunity to start uh, with you as a first, uh, as a first uh, content. Um, yeah, so we met on, on LinkedIn. We don't really know each other very well. I mean, we, we connected once online like now. And uh, I mean, I found you a very sympathetic person and very, you know, great person engaged and uh, with a very interesting CV and experience. We'll talk about all this. But uh, rather than me introducing you, maybe I, I dare to, to, to push you the ball over and maybe you want to say a few words about yourself. Yeah, of course. And firstly, thank you for inviting me, Pascal. I'm uh, yeah humbled to be the first person uh, to go onto your uh, live channel or your YouTube channel. Uh, I think that's a fantastic initiative. And of course, your group, I've been following you closely and I've been a member of that group uh, for a number of years now, which I think is how we actually came to, uh, came, came to chat. It was through exactly. the group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so by way of a quick background, I guess um, that's relevant to, to our discussion. I think it's probably useful for me to touch on very briefly on my personal history because I think that will give the listeners and viewers a little bit of context as to what gave birth to this podcast. So I'm a, I was born and raised in Bosnia in Sarajevo and I describe myself as an ethnic Bosnian, non-religious, so not one of the three ethnic groups um, that were arguably the identities present in the conflict in the 90s. However, I can comfortably say that I was on the receiving end. Uh, so, you know, I was inside the city of Sarajevo, inside the besieged city of Sarajevo. Uh, there was a, you know, a victim of a, of a pretty severe 
uh, aggression and I think held the record for the longest siege uh, in modern history. However, I was quite lucky um, that myself, mum and my brother, we actually got out of Sarajevo pretty early in the war. We were only there for a couple of months. Um, but my father stayed behind. Uh, of course, being a fighting age male, he really had no choice. He would have been, to be to be frank, he would have been killed at the first checkpoint. That was just the nature of the of the conflict at the time. And uh, we left in one of the last UN convoys uh, and then made it to Croatia, where we stayed a couple of months before we then made our way to Germany, uh, where we sought asylum and lived for three and a half years. That's my mum, brother and I. Until the war finished and then my dad joined us. But we were lucky that my mum had the foresight at the time to start applying for permanent residence uh, in Australia as well as the US. And we were lucky to get um, a skilled migrant visa for my parents. And then once my dad uh, got out, we were lucky to come to Australia. The reason I bring up that experience, because I think it set an early context or or maybe gave me a, a an idea in my informative in years of the perhaps trauma and the anguish and pain that is caused by war. I was a child in Sarajevo. It was exciting. You know, bombs were falling and we used to spend our, you know, pastime counting the grenades as they were falling, mm. uh, sitting in the cellar. This is me and my brother. Uh, that was a favorite pastime. And then when, you know, the shelling would stop, we'd run outside and collect shrapnel. Uh, which, mm. you know, thinking about it now is, is, is actually, hold on, that's, that's not what a child of 10 years should be doing. Uh, I was painting, you know, yeah, I was painting, mm. you know, images of the newfound Bosnian army. Uh, you know, that mm. was, that was, a, a, again, a favorite pastime. Yeah, I had the so I think that's to, the roots. Yeah. I had the chance to visit uh, Sarajevo and it's really impressive. You can really imagine it's in the valley, the whole city, a big city, very nice city, by the way. I really I recommend everybody to visit it. The old town is just amazing. Uh, so it's like a valley and you can really imagine when I was there and I knew the story, obviously. So you imagine like automatically guys sitting on yeah. the hills and shooting down, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, as you said, it is a valley and, and, and they're exceptionally high mountains. I mean, the Olympic mountains, uh, Sarajevo had the Winter Olympics in 1984. Um, and, you know, the, the weapon systems that were used were extensive uh, and you know most of your listeners who are familiar with former Yugoslavia will will be familiar with the fact that former Yugoslavian military was you know a significant force uh, and therefore you know when the war started those guns that were up on the hill against an enemy that uh, you know existed in the days of Yugoslavia were pointing outwards uh, and that enemy could be anyone you know it could have been the east mm -hmm. and the west uh, as Yugoslavia was a, was kind of a geopolitical uh, on the geopolitical middle ground between the East and the West. Um, but when the war started in Bosnia, the guns turned inwards to the city. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite, to a, quite a devastating effect. Um, but yeah, so it's a, and you're right, Sarajevo is a beautiful city. It's also known even today as the European Jerusalem. Uh, it is the only other city yeah. apart from Jerusalem that has, the, you know, the, all, the, the four monotheist uh, prayer, prayer houses yeah. uh, within, you know, one square kilometre. Uh, and that's, of course, something the Sarajevans take great pride in. Yeah, you can. You can be. Yeah. Yeah. How was it in that, in that area? You said you were there with your brother, but was your family there? Your father was serving, was outside or visiting you? Or, like, I don't know, how can we imagine that? Like, coming from time to time or? No, not at all. No, no. So, so in effect, when we left, so for the first couple of months, it was all, uh, uh, you know, 
the, the city was trying to figure out what to do and it was a benign territorial uh, defense that was established and, and, and repelled the first kind of attacks. Uh, Dad was conscripted into the army pretty soon uh, and then he started going to the front lines and so on. Um, being an engineer, he also supported uh, a lot of the the uh, weapon designs and, and, and when I say weapon design, I, I mean genuinely they were uh, making weapons out of nothing, uh, literally. Uh, you know, out of pipes mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did uh, s- some of that. But then once we got out uh, for that first year while we were in Germany, we had zero contact whatsoever uh, until suddenly one morning uh, he broke through. Uh, and, of course, we had a couple of scary moments where uh, we saw, you know, every night uh, while we were in Germany, of course, we were watching the news and watching for any news of him. Uh, but one night uh, his name came up on the list wow. of uh, killed, uh, which, wow. you know, was, was uh, of course, a shock to us. Uh, but then, uh, you know, fortunately, he didn't. He was wounded, uh, mm. but he lived. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was actually not, not long after that that he got in touch with us. And, of course, that was, you know. Uh, oh, that uh, must be. That was what, for one week? You didn't know? For one day? For two uh, hours? It, it was uh, because he had, no, it was only, it was actually just one day because he realized that, He'd name, his name had been uh, announced. Yeah. Longest uh, day of your life. Yeah, long, he then fought hard. Life. What's that? Sorry? Yeah, the and longest. I think for you that was the longest day in your life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was funny because I mean, we talk. Uh, you know, now we, we're talking through Zoom. You know, via the internet and so on. Hmm. Uh, but uh, our first conversations, in fact, even well into the into our time in Germany, we were talking through uh, what they, they were called as radio amateurs. So these were. Um, as the name suggests, amateurs who had uh, uh, VHF radios uh, and they would basically connect a couple of VHF radios uh, and through those VHF radios, you know, from Germany through Austria, through Croatia into Sarajevo, uh, you know, dad would go at a designated time uh, and those VHF uh, radios would all connect up through the radio amateurs uh, and we'd have a, have a, f- a phone line, you know, so it'd be one phone on one end. Uh, which is, you know, where we would be talking. Uh, so mm. it was, uh, it was all very rudimentary. But of course, for us at the time, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of uh, gratitude to actually hear his voice uh, and know that he's, uh, that he's, that he's alive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but I think that that experience, I think, from those early years, I think, gave a bit of context uh, as I started maturing. That you know, the world is not so black and white. War is not so black and white. Uh, and I think it also planted the seed for, you know, my subsequent career and future. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming into Australia, uh, subsequently joined the Australian military, uh, where I spent ten years uh, serving as an army officer. Uh, so that, that, to yeah, sorry, gone. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I said you 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 joined army in Australia. You, you somehow make a connection to your past. So what is the what is the motivation? I mean, I had my brother serving in the army in a professional unit, uh, so I, I can somehow understand or relate to it. Um, but your situation is very different. So was it like you, I don't know, thinking, okay, I want to do something, I don't know, support people, do something good or stop war? Or what, what was your motivation? I mean, you experienced army from a kind of negative uh, side, I mean, some way, and then you joined it yourself. What's, what's the relation? Yeah, so, so if, in fact, there are two parts to that story. First one is that from the age of three, and anybody that knows me my family will chuckle at this, 
from the age of three, I used to walk around introducing myself as veteran Maslik soldier. Uh, so I always had an affinity. And, you know, uh, even in Sarajevo, uh, when we used to go to my grandma's house, we'd go from one side of town to the other and we had to catch a tram. And the tram used to go past the uh, military barracks. Uh, and every time a soldier would walk in, that was it. Uh, I'd be, I'd be off. Uh, you know, and my parents would, of course, lose sight of me, but they'd just look for the uniform and find me there. So I had a real deep connection. Uh, as a child, I loved the uniform. I always have, uh, which I think a lot of boys, in particular, grow up with. Um, you know, my, my, I'd say my police or army. Strong, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, police yeah. or army. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, for me, it really was. Uh, you know, I, I really had a strong connection to the idea of being a soldier. But then, when I saw uh, Bosnia, and, and I never really thought about this until actually a couple of years into joining the army, that I really had to unpack this a little bit. Uh, but I think I recognized, see, those fairly first, first early days of Sarajevo, the territorial defense that, that resisted uh, the aggression, ultimately saved the city and saved the people. Mm-hmm. So I realized that, you know, a, a, a nation, a state, a people needs to have the ability to defend itself against uh, an aggression. But I was never, and I never joined the army to be, uh, um, a warrior, you know, to as much as I, you know, harbored those kind of aspirations of, you know, charging on top of the hill, which again, most of us have in some way, in some idealized way. Uh, but I joined in particular the intelligence uh, field uh, because I think that was, that allowed me to look behind the curtain, quote unquote, mm. behind the machinations of war mm. with the pure purpose to understand what drives conflict and what drives war in order to then in some small way be a piece in the solution as opposed to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, perhaps that's naive, uh, and, and I recognize having served and having deployed to you know, Afghanistan and East Timor, uh, I recognize that I was uh, and remain uh, a very small piece in a very, you know, a very small cog in a very big machine, mm-hmm. uh, but I still am convinced that my personal background drives me to look for ways to reduce violence, conflict, to increase understanding between the various sides, despite the fact that I'm very conscious of uh, the fact that I'm in the very machine designed to prosecute war and killing. Uh, So, you know, it might sound sound like an oxymoron, uh, but in my view, uh, I, I do feel that I'm in the right place, well, I was in the right place certainly at that time, uh, having experienced what I experienced uh, mm. to, to kind of help guide my decision-making, especially being a, a, uh, an officer and supporting decision-making. Uh, I think I was perhaps better armed with a different view of conflict than most of my counterparts uh, were who hadn't experienced something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an impressive story. Good, nice reflections. I see that. For, I see that, as I said, from, from my brother. I mean, he was definitely wanting to do good, help people, support people, provide security. Very strong, very strong um, uh, conviction of, about this uh, type of uh, engagement. So, um, yeah, I mean, and in Switzerland, we have, you know, we, we are a neutral country, and sometimes people are surprised. They say, but you're neutral. Why do you have an army and even such a big army? <laughs> well, we call it armed neutrality. So, we, uh, if needed, we can we can defend. You know, that's the that's the yeah. point. 
And that's an interesting, and that's, I mean, that's certainly one of the aspects that I, that I also look forward to discussing in my podcast and something we touched on when we kind of first had a chat as well. And I think it's a really interesting point that Switzerland is a really interesting example where, you know, you do have your military service uh, that you all do uh, in preparation for, you know, if you ever have to defend yourself. Whereas yeah. in Australia, we're a professional military. So for us, you join, you join the military and that is your job. Uh, that's what you do, mm-hmm. uh, which, and, 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 you know, there are two schools of thought here. And I think we, we briefly touched on this when we, when we had a chat, but I think, uh, the fact that everybody in Switzerland gets to understand soldiering, even to the rudimentary level, right? Even merely in training, uh, I think there's a much closer, or much better understanding and a much big, bigger, a lot more skin in the game, I think, mm-hmm. than for civilians in countries that have a professional military. For us, it's rather easy as civilians to send our professional military overseas because as a civilian population, no. we don't feel that war. That war is over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's, in fact, one of the, one of the kind of you know, principal motivators of my podcast is to you know, bring to light the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it uh, and mainly to those who've never been exposed to war, soldiering, never been cold uh, in their life, never heard, heard a, you know, gunshot, never been on the receiving end of, uh, you know, a howitzer where your entire world tremors, uh, never heard a sniper shot, you know, those sorts of things. But, but yeah, sorry, I I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I think it's a, it's an interesting case study, I think, Switzerland. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, personally, it's a bit theoretical, but I think, uh, probably the best solution would be some kind of world police under the UN and no national armies. But that's a bit far away, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I'd hesitate to say that it's probably probably some time away yet. But but yeah, I mean, it's a. I mean, again, there's a lot of research suggesting that you know we're mm. we're growing to bigger and bigger communities and uh, breaking borders, even though we've had some resurgence uh, over the last decade mm. or so. But but yeah, mm. I agree. And then, so you went to Croatia, from that to Germany, and then. Uh, and then we were lucky to migrate to Australia. Um, so I bounced around looking for trying to figure out my own identity and my sense of self. Uh, so I was 14 when I came oh. to Australia, obviously finished my high school. Uh, and, and, and there were some interesting years, I think, trying to figure out who I was and, and how to blend these various identities into a new Australian identity. Um, but yeah, then after, you know, some trials and tribulations uh, of, you know, civilian university, I then actually said, no, I, 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 I want to do this. I need to do this um, because I've been talking about joining the military, but as you can appreciate, both my parents, particularly my dad, uh, were very much against it, having oh. gone through our experience, particularly dad, mm. who's been on the front lines for three and a half years. Uh, he was certainly very opposed to it. Mm. But needless to say, after a couple of years in, he realized that the Australian military is something very different. Uh, mm. And it is. It really is. Uh, yeah. Uh. Uh, you triggered some things. I'm a little bit into intercultural relations and identity issues and so on. So you said that you went to find your identity and you get into the new Australian one. So it's not the main uh, the main object of this of this talk, but uh, <laughs> triggered something. So what's your what do you could say now? What's your Australian identity? What's your Australian identity? Or how does it connect with your past? Or how do how is a migrant uh, with your history into Australia? What's well, how would you describe such an entity? 
I mean, that's a really, really strong question. And, and I must say, it's also fueled a lot of my, my own studies, having studied communication, interpersonal, interpersonal, intercultural communication, um, you know, later on. But, um, what is my identity? And how, I mean, I think it's, it is a blend, uh, without a doubt. The closest thing I have to home is Australia. There's no question of that because this mm -hmm. is where I feel the closest to home. While my Bosnian peers might frown at that, that is my cultural heritage that I hold very close to my heart. There's, again, no question there. And nothing moves me more than Bosnian music, music that I grew up with. <laughs> nothing moves me more, uh, mm -hmm. you know, while I will, you know, sing English songs, there's nothing that I that I will engage with as deeply and emotionally as with Bosnian music. Um, so there is definitely, I definitely carry seeds of that uh, identity, and it's certainly there. And I think it's shaped a lot of my interpersonal re relationships. It's certainly shaped a lot of my nonverbal communication. Uh, the way I interact with people is very much still part of that Balkan the Balkan traits uh, of, you know, being very, uh, very tactile uh, in my, in my uh, relationships. Um, but I think, and, and having lived in Germany also, I've, I've, you know, for three and a half years at a, at a significant forming period, I really drew a lot from the German mentality and I have great respect for the German people, uh, German view of the world. Uh, that also, I think, planted some seeds uh, in who I've then uh, subsequently become. Uh, but I think once I then came to Australia, that that's this is where I have my roots now. I think this is what is the closest home uh, to home, and I think my sense of identity is a blend. Uh, and I say that proudly, uh, and I and I proudly talk about my heritage, uh, but also equally, I proudly proudly talk about me being an Australian. Uh, Australia, you know being one of the few countries in the world that is truly a migrant nation with, you know, 23% mm -hmm. of us uh, having uh, been overseas, uh, having been born overseas, which, mm -hmm. you know, I think is one of the highest in the world. Uh, so I think in many ways, you know, I am truly an Australian because that is what Australia is all about. Uh, so, yeah. We, yeah. I, I like the word blend that you used to, to blend this different entities because it's interesting to observe, you know, I think in our, in our, uh, way of seeing identities and cultures you should typically if you ask kids you know multi uh, binational bi kids like father from one country mother from the other they say i'm half half yeah i say no you're not half half because it's not there's not there's not limited 100 you know you can be 100 of this and 100 of this you can be 200 you can be 300 it's you know it's blending it's cumulative but that's yeah. a, that's a way of seeing it you know but most people are more like okay the more i'm this the less i'm this so the more i become yeah. australian the more i lose my bosnian yeah, uh, initial, yeah. but I think that's not the case. Of course, the longer you're away, you maybe forget some language or whatever. That's of course, but uh, I think if if you want and if you uh, if you keep the traditions and so on, then you can be you can be two hundred percent or three hundred or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's not about being dogmatic about it. I mean, it's not a which which is sometimes what I think I see a lot of in 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 even some of my Bosnian friends who almost reject you know being considered uh, Australian, which I find sometimes quite fascinating. Uh, but that's also their own trauma that they're dealing with. It's holding on to something, mm -hmm. holding on to, on to a past that it no longer is. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate to have had the right help to guide me through that. In my, certainly, especially in the first couple of years joining the military, I had the right 
type of uh, counseling and, and advice uh, to yeah. help me overcome some of those issues of identity uh, in particular. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there's a re- one really beautiful concept that, that sticks with me even today. And this is idea of walking in two worlds, um, yeah. which exactly. really opened my eyes to that. What, what you just talked about, you know, it is really, it's not about 50, 50, you know, mm-hmm. it's about 200%, you know, that's perfectly fine to live in a, in this, you know, two hundred percent, hundred percent, uh, and that you can blend those. Um, and that, that's, that, that was a concept that really helped me. That's a very nice inclusive uh, point of view. And I think if we all had this all around the world, we would have probably less conflicts, which, which brings me a bit back to your, to your podcast. So I, I have here, I opened the, the voices of war.com, uh, which mm-hmm. is the main page of the, of the podcast as I understood. And you're actually on all channels, huh? Google, I don't know, maybe you want to name Google, Apple, I don't even know Spotify. Yeah. Yes, all the main ones. I mean, you know, people can access all the episodes via the the, the website www.thevoicesofwar.com, uh, or uh, simply you know searching for the Voices of War on any of the main um, apps. You know, so Google uh, Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's it should be quite easy to find. Mm. How about the logo you choose? Uh, I think it's uh, it fits very well what what you're doing at the topic, and it's really I think illustrative. I don't know. Did you have a specific reflection on it? Was it like automatic, or I was just thinking about it. Seeing it now, I thought, uh, yeah, it's to, really illustrative. Yeah. I mean, to be entirely honest, it, it it happened by by just pure coincidence. It was I was trying to figure out. I wanted to have a blend of something that stands out so obviously the color um mm-hmm. and of course the text is a strong contrast mm-hmm. uh, but i really thought the barbed wire uh in my view nothing depicts war and and the the trauma tragedy sadness the absolute mm-hmm. pain and horror of war is captured i think in barbed wire uh, mm-hmm. even the image of barbed wire says so much so there's a, there's not only the concentration camps uh, but of course you know the barbed wire uh, on, on the front lines around the trenches um, and i think it really captures in, in so many ways the abject inhumanity of war uh, that we have such technology like barbed wire uh, to protect us from one another or to yeah. keep people in or to keep people out um, so it, it kind of it, it visually it spoke to what I was trying to achieve and, and it just, it just fit. Uh, and, and when it, when I, when I saw it, I was, uh, it, 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 it just felt like it was the right image. And yeah, so um, I, 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 I'm, I'm thankful that you see it uh, as that because that was my, um, my intention was for it to have uh, you yeah. know, a, a lot of symbolism in it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the Bob Byer, it separates people. It hurts, you know, if you, if you run into it. But so it speaks about many, many things without, without using like a terrible photo or something that you two could have yeah. done as well. But so, it's... yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, so, uh, the voices of war. Um, who are these voices of war? Yeah. I mean, it's a, see, the, it's actually the name that, uh, that, 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 that took a while to, to really, not out because what maybe I'll, I'll start by just kind of retelling the the idea or the vision of the podcast, and that is uh, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who lived it. And 
my conviction of this, and maybe I just need to finish off a little bit on my on my past uh, to give some more context because uh, th- that will enrich uh, the point I'm about to make. Uh, so I was in the military for 10 years and uh, met my partner uh, in East Timor. We were both deployed. She was also uh, in defense as a civilian. Uh, but uh, in 2013, we both decided, okay, it's time to have a bit of a break from uh, the lifestyle of a professional military, which is quite arduous, particularly at that time, quite frequent deployments, long courses, always away from home, very difficult to have a relationship, uh, you know, or start a relationship. So we decided well, to- If it's not do... if it's not too personal, she also Australia? She's also- uh, Yes, Australian, yeah, Australian okay. but born in, uh, well, she, it's actually an interesting story. She's She was born in Turkey- uh, and but oh. migrate so her family migrated to Australia when she was uh, one and a half. But as we later found out, uh, we did uh, the DNA test uh, just more for fun than anything else. But uh, as we later found out, she is actually genetically speaking more Bosnian than I am, which uh, which ended up being quite a joke in in, in the household. Uh, because what we thought they thought that they were part of you know the Ottoman Empire that conquered, of course you know, big chunk of, uh, of Europe and, of course, Bosnia. Uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, with the annexation uh, by Austro-Hungary, many Turks went back to Turkey. Yeah. Well, they thought that they were – they knew that they had some links to Bosnia in, in their kind of lineage, but they thought that they were the conquering Turks going back. Uh, well, no, it turns out that, uh, in fact, they were also Bosnian refugees uh, going to Turkey. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's actually quite funny. But, um, mm. yeah, both her grandmothers even now have some – uh, phrases in Bosnian that their mothers passed on to them. Oh. Uh, so of course that was a very good way for me through the uh, through the through grandmothers to just have some jokes in uh, in Bosnian where no one else could understand. And that's a nice um, story. Yeah, it, and it really kind of yeah, it, we were we were all blown away uh, by that really uh, because her 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 heritage is actually quite quite significant from that part of the world. Uh, but yeah, we both decided it was time to just uh, do something completely different uh, and to try and achieve. A separation from that very organized life, uh, certainly for me. Uh, and we decided we'll go back to Bosnia and start a project, a not-for-profit project. Um, and I'll have to say it, but some of your viewers or listeners uh, might hold this against me, but we opened the country's uh, first CrossFit gym. Uh, now, you know, before people scream down uh, their video, we certainly weren't part of the, uh, you know, drink the Kool-Aid uh, CrossFit uh, club. Uh, my, my but we do today. really... Well, why should they? I mean, I go to CrossFit for only a few weeks now. I was this morning, actually. I get up very early. I this at 6 a.m. Yeah. Uh, so it's great sport, I think. So why should they? What uh, are you concerned absolutely. About? And I couldn't agree more. But there is yeah. a lot of um, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, some of it, I must admit, is quite valid of the cult-like nature uh, in certain parts or uh, in certain uh, gyms, uh, CrossFit okay. gyms. So, so I think that's that's kind of caught the attention of uh, many of the other uh, fitness enthusiasts. But without a doubt, I, I'm still a uh, you know I still you know train CrossFit regularly, and I, I'm a believer in what CrossFit has done. And I think it's uh, and that's the reason why we decided this is the tool for us to do what we wanted to do. It has an uncanny ability to break down barriers mm-hmm. uh, between age groups, gender, ability. Everybody does the same thing, and as you know, uh, someone who's you know recently started, uh, you know everybody can does the same thing. It's just you know the, the intensity level is adjusted by the weights one uses or the speed one uh, completes their sign exercises in. 
but the power of everybody training together. And of course, there's the mutual supporting nature of the sport where when you finish, everybody gives a, you know, high fives. And there's, of course, uh, in fact, there's a lot of research behind now behind CrossFit and why it's, why it's become the global phenomenon that it has. Uh, and this is one of those aspects that it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60, uh, you can all train together. Uh, and that's what we decided was going to be our tool uh, to go to Bosnia and open the first in the country uh, because we were both training CrossFit um, and we recognized that it, it, this ability to build a community. So we decided we'll go to Bosnia, uh, open the gym uh, to try and build bridges between the, the, the severed links of the ethnic groups, uh, but also using our international profile, quote unquote, uh, to bring in a lot of foreigners in as well to kind of build a community of like-minded individuals uh, and using the sport of CrossFit as the kind of pillar uh, to then go and do some uh, community projects, you know. So we did a lot of charity work for um, kids with autism, kids with you know cancer. Uh, the SOS Children's Village, we supported them for a couple of years uh, quite extensively. And the connection uh, was... Yeah, sorry. The, the connection between this and the and the sport was that uh, you used the funding from there, or, or it was the same people. People did sports, and then other projects beside. Or what was? That's the, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it was the members themselves. So it was it was it was some of the some of the events were member initiated, uh, and we as a club would provide some funding for it. Uh, we'd cover some of the costs for say registrations for uh, the Sarajevo Half Marathon. Uh, so you know, we as the club uh, would you know front some money and also donate some money. Uh, but of course, as in uh, my other half, who I should have introduced uh, earlier, uh, but yeah, my other half is Essen. we would do some challenges, right? So uh, one year she did uh, 1,600 and something burpees, uh, you know, where she was getting money for every burpee that she did. And of course, our members were the ones donating the money uh, and we filmed it. Uh, and of course, it was a little bit of fun uh, because, you know, there, there's something slightly... Uh, pleasurable about watching your coach the one who you know gets you to do all of these things and puts you through pain every single day there's something pleasurable about watching them in pain yeah. um you know i did uh a, i think something like 700 burpees in a full fireman suit with a helmet and the and the tank uh, so just you know some might say stupid things or we ran the so burpee maybe on. maybe to the non-initiated you have to explain a burpee so burpee, in essence, is a is a push up on steroids, right? So you go down into a push up position, but then you also have to jump up, you know, and clap your hands above your head. Uh, you know, for anybody that's uninitiated, I challenge them to do ten, uh, just to see what uh, what it does to their heart rate uh, in their lungs. Uh, but yeah, so doing those types of numbers under those type type of conditions, uh, yeah, you certainly feel it. Uh, you know, and we we film it, of course, and uh, you know that was that oh, was fun for our available. Yeah, yeah, of course. They are they're all available on the on the on the website of the, yeah. of the CrossFit Sarajevo uh, Facebook page. Okay. Um, oh, it's still existing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It still exists. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we handed it okay. over to someone who had a similar vision. Uh, in fact, it was recently handed over to a new person uh, who also has a similar vision. Oh, great. Uh, but yeah. one of the things, yeah, it was it was look it, for us. We, we were there. We were in Sarajevo for you know nearly three and a half years, but uh, we managed and owned the club for two and a half because it took us quite, quite some time to set it up. There is um, more for me to go to Sarajevo again. Absolutely. And there's something very special about Cross to Sarajevo, not only because of its founding vision uh, and its founding group of people and the coaches and so on, uh, but also because it's inside the Olympic Stadium, uh, which oh. is 
quite rare for any CrossFit gym around the world to have its own Olympic track uh, as a 400 meter track, which, as you know, and any other listeners, oh, you run along the street, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You run along the street, you know, around the block, whereas uh, we'd run out into the Olympic Stadium with, you know, right underneath the cauldron, and the cauldron is still there. Yeah. Uh, so there was something very special about that. And I think that was part of the idea and vision is to breathe back some some of that sporting spirit into a country that has suffered so much and a country that still suffers so much, but it has such a wonderful spirit, a sporting spirit. Uh, you know, you don't need to look far to, uh, you know, just by looking at the surnames, you can find a lot of heritage uh, in various sports from not just Bosnia, but the Balkans. Uh, so the entire region is very committed to sport. Uh, so yeah, that was a that was a very pleasing thing. But probably the most moving, and this was a member initiated um, um, a project we did, and that was a blood blood drive. So you know we trained one Saturday morning, and we invited the blood bank to come and set up inside the gym. Mm. You know, and as we'd finish our training, we'd have a bit of food, and you know, off you went and you gave blood. Uh, which not only is that not something that's really very popularized, unfortunately, in the Balkans, uh, but also to do it as a club rather than a private citizen uh, certainly stood out. But perhaps the most symbolic message that we had, and it was one of the images that, that did kind of make its way around, uh, was that we had a, different ethnicity coaches. Um, you know, we had a Bosniak, a Serb, uh, you know, myself who's, you know, non-religious uh, Bosnian, uh, my partner who's Turkish, you know, we had another one who identifies as a Croat. Uh, so in essence, we covered really all the ethnic groups plus you know, the outsiders. Uh, and the symbolic message there is we all bleed red. Uh, and that was the powerful image, I think, that kind of circled around and made its way in the, amongst the social media at the time, uh, which was a powerful image for a Bosnia that has been so broken on so many levels. Uh, you know, here was a small group of people, small organization that was uh, certainly punching well above its weight, uh, not only in the donations that we were, you know, giving to, to organizations, but also in the kind of symbol, symbolism and the messages we were sending, so uh, which was all of very kind of positive kind of building relationships. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm impressed. <laughs> very nice, uh, very nice project, and especially it's still ongoing. So that's really that's yeah. really great. So it's for a couple yeah. of years now, then. No? Yeah. So we're, well, so we opened it uh, in 2014. So that's you know, and it's uh, what seventh year now. So it's uh, it's and it's and it's it's going strong, and there's now. Uh, three or four different CrossFit gyms uh, in in Sarajevo and uh, in the country. And in fact, a lot of those um, that have then gone to open their own gyms were uh, either members of ours or coaches of ours, which again is something that we're very pleased with, uh, that we helped kind of build a cadre of, uh, of, of what we consider healthy-minded, healthy-spirited coaches who would embrace a similar spirit of, you know, building and trying to help build, you know, healthy lifestyles uh, within like-minded people uh, rather than um, try to seek the macho, how much can you lift uh, type attitudes, which, which certainly mm. exist uh, and certainly exist in the Balkans, but exist everywhere else. Uh, so so we're, we're actually very proud of that fact. Yeah. Good. So, well, in my in my in my chapter, it's not the case neither. So, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's great to hear. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, going back to the podcast. So, uh, yeah, the voice so far you were starting uh, explaining a little bit whose whose voices are these uh, the the voice mm -hmm. of war. 
you have a, now last uh, the recent uh, episodes are focused on uh, Afghanistan with the news we all know about uh, yeah. but you have many actually how many episodes do you have uh, so 23 uh, now and 24th about to come out um, but yeah you're right the, the kind of more recent ones are very Afghanistan focused and I think that's just in response to uh, the crisis uh, unfolding mm. uh, and there was a lot of interest obviously around the world uh, of people hearing what's happening uh, and again I'm very fortunate to have uh, some access with some people uh, especially people on the ground as well uh, local analysts uh, to give the local perspective uh, but in general the way I the way I've what I'm trying to do is is try to bring the story of war both to those who've never experienced it but also to have some a point of recognition for those who've experienced war and its traumas mm-hmm. excuse me so the way I see it is um there's ultimately four groups that I'm that I'm well, at least for now there are four groups that I'm speaking with uh, and exploring uh, various aspects of war and first one is survivors of war so whether they be those who who've lived and stayed in a war zone and uh, you know going through and discussing with them how war has changed them what war has done to them what was the price of war what were some of the good things of war and, and of course you know this is uh, this is not just there are good things in war that come out of war that people experience or, or friendships or uh, realizations of what's important uh, but undoubtedly the cost is far greater than uh, the benefit uh, but of course I then speak to refugees as well just like myself uh, to try and uh, contextualize some of those experiences perhaps also to help some of my own healing and answer some of my own questions uh, I then speak to the prosecutors of war so soldiers those who we send forth to do our bidding to do the fighting on our behalf those who do the hard work whether they be combat troops so frontline troops or supporting elements uh, the experiences differ of course but i think many of the traumas many of the doubts many of the questions uh, are quite similar mm-hmm. uh, and of course i looking to explore and 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 want to speak to those who send us to war so politicians who actually do send us forth to fight uh, you know in certainly in Australia's case, expeditionary wars, um, you know, in far places that most of us have never been to. And through this, I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to unpack this idea, particularly of just war theory, which is one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in and something that I've spent some time studying, but also things like uh, subsets of the just war theory of the conduct of war and things that I think are where we're in some small way deluding ourselves uh, because I think war is visceral, uh, war is all-encompassing, and I think we have this false narrative of war that it's glorified, that it's that it's fantastic, that it's uh, that there is a you know sense of achievement, and of course all of those things may happen from time to time. But I think having read and spoken to many of those who've been in real combat, uh, more often than not, that's not the case. They come back changed, and certainly not for the better. Uh, and I think that's something we don't talk about enough, uh, and and certainly in this 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 idea of of you know, you know Bellock, for example, the the conduct of war, uh, it's a particular area of interest, and uh, something that I'm trying to unpack myself. You know why why good people end up doing bad things, 
and, and I'm convinced that the environment has a lot to do with it. Uh, so these are the kind of questions that I'm trying to wrestle with in the with the kind of prosecutors yeah. of war. Uh, okay. Then, of course, there are the healers of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another big dimension. Uh, and my eyes were open to this. So, so after after Sarajevo, uh, we went to Sweden, where I studied uh, for a couple of years, uh, and Essen worked. Uh, and then I was lucky to go and spend nearly eight months uh, in Iraq. Um, as a country manager for a British development organization. So we had a bunch of interesting projects, um, um, kind of decentralization of governance projects, some strategic communication projects, uh, and also some intelligence projects that we're overseeing. But one of the things that I realized is that even this, and I, and I partially, partially jokingly, but almost also seriously, I refer to it as the post-violent conflict industrial complex. So we all know about the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this is about the post-violent conflict uh, mm-hmm. uh, industrial complex because mm-hmm. the sheer amount of money that is spent and resources that is spent in rebuilding a country post-conflict yeah. uh, is something that my eyes were open to and I, j- I just never understood and, and realized. Yeah. And I want to understand that. Because it's uh it's uh yeah i mean i'm also i'm also into it to some extent through through ngos and so but i think we can say to some extent it's it's a business also that's right yeah absolutely um and and i was fortunate or unfortunate i'm not quite sure that the company i worked for uh was uh it it, it went bankrupt um through some what i consider to be grossly unethical practices Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I'm, I'm kind of you know glad that it did collapse. Although many people paid the price, and certainly not those who should have. Um, you know, that's many usual. people who, yeah, that's right. So people who were out in the field, uh, local nationals who worked for the organisation, uh, were left without you know months and months of salaries. Uh, but you know that is the nature of it. But it certainly opened my eyes to to that industry, uh, and of course to some of its potential flaws. There's plenty of good people and lots lots of good work being done, uh, but I think uh, uh, it pays for us to get a better understanding of what uh, this entire industry uh, actually achieves. And that's what I'm that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to shed some light on on the good work, but also on some of the challenges that exist, and 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 whether there's any way to uh, um, to kind of unpack that. Probably one part of the problem is the challenge is huge. I mean, if you want to, let's call it pacifying a, a nation or a country, it's just a huge task. And I think it should be as much as possible domestically uh, done, the domestic engagement, local yeah. ownership and so on. Yeah. I mean, what you were referring to just before with the NGO is more individual misbehavior, however you want to call it. Um, that's of course a very specific problem that you have everywhere in any in any kind of industry. Um, yeah, then you have the fact that it's uh, it's somehow a business in a sense. Uh, people are running for funding, and that's a bit uh, in the structure of it. You know, you you have the receivers, you have the supporters. Uh, very often in the in the global north, let's call it this way, and then you have the funders. And they are competing for funders and so on. I mean, I, I, I experienced this also sometimes. Hmm. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's part of the game. I don't know. I, I it's not, it's not now the moment to, to think about this. I don't know how to do it better, but uh, that's how it is yeah. currently. So there are some yeah. challenges, definitely some auto criticism. But yeah. the other a very important thing is that it's just a huge task. I mean, how do you want to reform a society or, you know, uh, it's whatever happens. I mean, it can go well for one year or two, and then something happens, a putsch or whatever, or a new force comes up, and all the investments are gone. You know, that's what we're talking about now in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah you, you cannot insure it. You know, it's 
too big, too too many dynamics to you know. Yeah. But that yeah, doesn't exactly. mean we should not do it. I think that's I'm very convinced of this as well. So we should still yeah. try to do good and help and support and with a lot of principles and ethical uh, guidelines, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. Exactly. And, that, and 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 I couldn't agree more with you. And I think that's a that's a that's probably an important point to to just kind of double tap on. Uh, because it really is I'm certainly not against in any way of the developing industry. I think it's a noble industry and by and large the overwhelming majority of people that do the work do it with the right intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the again, like everywhere else, it's the small number of people that uh um perhaps have a disproportionate impact uh, on uh, you know, and cause reputational damage uh, when it's not uh, necessarily justified. But it's certainly something that I'm that I'm keen to explore and 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 speak with people about. Right. For me myself to learn better about it and also to share that those insights uh, with people in this industry who I'm sure are having the same questions. And I've certainly spoken to, you know, even even you yourself who's been in that industry have just said that you've seen if you've seen it yourself. Mm. Uh, so it's a it's it's certainly nothing new. It's it's a lot of us are aware of it. Also, maybe I have to ask, I'm sorry, but I think it's also yeah. probably the expectations are maybe higher because you call it a noble field or noble industries. I mm-hmm. think. So, and I think the expectations are higher because you see similar problems you know, in private areas, private industries and so on. So, but I think here it's maybe the expectations are higher. It's like you have higher expectations towards a doctor than towards your plumber, mm-hmm. I guess, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just mm-hmm. about what the, what the, would you self give as intention? You know, we want to good. We want to be good guys and help and support. Yeah. And then if it doesn't work, it means you know it's hard to say. Yeah. the downside yeah. is much higher and uh, worse if if you come with a higher expectations and higher intentions. Yeah. 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 And just to stress as well on that, I, I'm certainly not against people making money in the industry. Right? I, just, I just want to underline that because l- lest it be misunderstood, because I don't necessarily think that there's a there's anything wrong with even getting rich of those types of projects. But, you know, I'm quite agnostic over that. I've got no, you know, I think that's a, if that's an incentive, that's fine. Uh, but I think it's more about how, um, how the projects are, are delivered and then how they're measured importantly. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's only something that's, that's, uh, that's an aspect. And that's mm-hmm. probably takes me to the fourth group, which is the researchers of conflict. Um, yeah. That's whether they be academics, uh, um, you know, or, or or even people who do monitoring and evaluation, who actually try to give us a picture of what's been achieved and done. The watchdogs. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and that's an. I think it's an important dynamic and aspect uh, of conflict and post conflict. Um, to to bring it to our, you know, you know, through through reading, through articles, through books, uh, bringing it to our consciousness and our discourse. Uh, you know, a particular aspect, again, uh, and you made the point that's obviously your background, but certainly a great interest of mine is culture. Um, you know, having been an intercultural trainer and, you know, after Iraq, I went to Sweden and I, I was lecturing uh, at the University of Gothenburg. Uh, and one of the things I was lecturing in was intercultural communication because I think it's a, there's a, there's a, uh, and, and, and one of my colleagues there, he wrote a book on, on culture and one of the quotes that I have is, you know, uh, cultures do not meet, people do. Uh, and and I, I really found that <laughs> profound in how I understood culture and something that I've taken with me since um, because I think we fall for this trap that, you know, culture is this big behemoth that, you know, we just can't understand or that it's fixed even. An easy explanation of many things. You peg it into its yeah. culture and peg it into there. That explains exactly. it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you peel it back, if you peel back all the cultural programming, uh, you know, we're all just people. And if, if, you, if you know how to communicate with people, if you know what drives and motivates people, uh, you know, any cultural faux pas you might do will be forgiven. Uh, but that takes time and effort. Uh, it takes patience. So, absolutely right. And, but and I'm conscious that this is your field, so this is probably something that where uh, I'll invite you on the podcast and we can actually uh, <laughs> explore in a lot more detail. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, you talked about the prosecutors, so actually soldiers and so on, right? So, would that be prosecutors from any sides? Absolutely, and I think that's a it's a, such a nuanced question, and 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 yeah, well done on zeroing in on that because that's I think a really important point. Um, I think it's important that, you know, the, the old adage, you know, one man's uh, terrorist and another man's freedom fighter, you know, without getting too idealistic and philosophical on it, you know, mm. I'm sure that that's actually really truly the case. Uh, while I'm, you know, there are, there are certain extremes uh, that I certainly could never endorse, uh, but I would nonetheless listen to those views and Again, as I mentioned before, I, I really believe that the environment has a lot to do with who we are. Uh, and, you know, no one is born a quote-unquote terrorist. Right? No one is born a quote-unquote suicide bomber. No one is born quote-unquote uh, a war criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, people become those things. Uh, and, and in order to understand how people go down that path, what it is that gets them to that path, while, of course, there's a percentage who are merely psychopaths and, you know, they were always going to be a menace to society. Others are mere bystanders or participants almost unconsciously, uh, almost as part of the group dynamic. Uh, and, of mm. course, we've, we know this from obedience research, you know, not least with, you know, Milgram, uh, yeah. but, of course, you know, uh, pl- plenty since, um, which is why I think it's really it it does us a disservice as a human civilization, not a national identity, but as a civilization, as a species, to not hear those voices and to understand what actually gets people to that point. Uh, because I think interaction, interpersonal, intercultural, um, you know, international, is a matter of action, reaction, action, reaction. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I cause, I, I do something, you will react. I will react to that reaction and so on and so forth. Yeah. And unless we understand how that how we go up that scale, I think we're living ourselves much poorer. Uh, and and I think it reduces our chances of coming to an outcome that is actually truly a win-win, uh, as opposed to, you know, a win-lose, which is more often than not what, you know, mm. what we go to war for. Uh, you know, mm. it's about that- victory. Yeah, good point. So, what do you go for war for? Before you, you, you used the term just war, and there are obviously a couple of theories. I think originally more from religious backgrounds, you know, Christian just war theory and and other yeah. and so on. And um, yeah, I would be interested to have some reflections when you said on that. Also, I don't know if you, I don't even know if this is still something up to date. But uh, when I studied the field. I, I did one work on uh, R2P, Responsibility to Protect, mm-hmm. that was yep. driven by the Canadians at that time. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about all this? I mean, maybe just for the listeners, R2P was, yeah. I don't know, maybe you, probably you can explain better, but basically if the state is not able to defend the human rights or even violating the human rights of its own people, other states have the right to invade and to 
who disrespect and have a responsibility their, their, to yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and 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 again I, I i'm certainly in favor of 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 the school of thought of r2p so responsibility to protect um, because there are those you know in 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 places where atrocities are being committed you know uh, standing by is not being neutral you know that that doesn't mean being neutral. oh don't say that, that to a swiss no, no, I'm well no of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. no it's a, it's a, but, uh, honestly it's a very uh, i'm uh, reflecting on this a lot because when i meet people from abroad and they tell me but you're neutral how can you be you know in some situations yeah why not thinking about it but yeah let's go go ahead but 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 just to make that point it also doesn't mean going to war mm. Okay. That is, you know, in other ways. With, exactly right. So, in accordance with just war theory, one of the tenets of just war theory, there has to be the last resort. Yeah. Now, I, I'm 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 a proponent of just war theory because it's the best we've got. There isn't one that we have. There isn't a theory that we've come up with that in, infuses a sense of morality in war as well as just war theory. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Obviously, nothing is, but it's the best we've got. So therefore, I'm I'm a strong supporter of it. Which is not to say that we can't unpack it more and therefore hold, in in particular, hold our leaders to account to the very same theory, or the very same tenets of the theory that we hold our soldiers to account for. And what I mean by that is one one example. At which point do we say it is the last resort? Mm. You know, take take the example of you know Afghanistan. Um, which I, you know, again, I'm, 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 I'm kind of agnostic about the actual, uh, you know, origins of it. I, 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 I tend to lean more on that it was the right thing to go, uh, but how it was conducted, uh, I think, is what, um, you know, where we came undone. And again, this is where culture comes into it. You know, we never really, particularly in Afghanistan, we never fought the war we thought we fought. Uh, that's my honest opinion, and this is something that I discuss with a number of guests on the podcast. But, you know, was it really the last resort? Maybe it was. And if it was, then I think it was fair to go. But what if it wasn't? Were there other ways and means that we could have... Uh, you mean the moving in 2001, huh? You're talking yeah. about the moving yeah, in Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and perhaps a, a, an even clearer example is Iraq war, you know, mm-hmm. in 2003. Mm-hmm. That's perhaps a, a, a more uh, poignant example to, you know, unpack. Uh, was it a war of necessity? You know, many will say probably not. Was it the last resort? Probably not. Uh, were there other ways and means? Probably. Again, what was the intention? What do we actually try to achieve? And where my biggest issue lies with just war theory is that we don't hold our leaders to account, and I mean our politicians. Uh, certainly in Australia, it's one of the few, if not the only developed nation, where the prime minister alone can send us to war without any parliamentary debate, which is unheard of in the developed world Mm -hmm. Uh, and i don't think that's right i don't think that our leaders should have that level of impunity uh, to send our boys and girls to war to fight to die with zero impunity yeah yeah, apart from you know now 20 years later um, having some sound bites about their perspective as to you know why they went whereas our soldiers who go to war are held very strictly to the rules of war, as they should be, to the Geneva Convention and so on. Mm. Uh, and of course, you know, I and I argue strongly that mistakes will be made, but I also argue that 
given the circumstances under which our soldiers deploy, uh, and you know, without getting too deeply into the topic, I'm convinced that it's actually very, very highly likely that you know, war crimes will occur because of the construct of how we deploy, of the uncertain environment we deploy in, the lack of sleep, and so on and so forth, and, and various other. And there's plenty of research to support you know how our moral decisions get skewed and how our moral compass uh, can get thrown out of whack. And this is something I've discussed uh, you know, recently with uh, Shannon E. French uh, on one of the maybe four episodes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, yes, yeah, so... Uh, uh, yep, so a bit further down. So, okay, yep, bit mountain. Yeah, so the next one, that one, Shannon mm-hmm. E. French mm-hmm. uh, on Dakota the Warrior. Uh, she was uh, the... Uh, the head of the uh, head of ethics at um, at the United States Marine Corps uh, School in Quantico. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing, amazing researcher. Has written a phenomenal book, The Code of the Warrior. Uh, this is something we, for example, discussed uh, at length, and 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 I think we we were you know in agreement by and large about how the environment of of a conflict lends itself perfectly well for that sliding scale of humanity to slowly, slowly degrade to the point where, you know, we then ultimately end up dehumanizing the others. And that's if you just scroll up one, uh, the episode after, if you just scroll one up, uh, uh, the episode after Shannon was with uh, uh, with David Livingston Smith, who is the, you know, one of the four foremost thinkers on dehumanization. Mm. All of these things are kind of blended in together. And I think it all falls onto the shoulders of decision makers who send us to war. And, no. and I argue that we oftentimes go to war way too easily uh, without really understanding. And the decision makers are certainly not the ones that go to war uh, or experience its horrors. No. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's, a, in, in, you know, and I'm conscious that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also delving into, into various topics here, but that's, that's kind of the, the broad area of interest. And, and certainly when we talk about prosecutors of war and a just war theory, um, I, I, I get the sense that we rely on that a little bit too much as a throwaway. And certainly having been educated in that myself uh, in just war theory, um, I, I get the sense that it's sometimes it's merely a bandaid as opposed to, Mm-hmm. truly a deeply understood theory that we really, truly try to uphold no. as much as we possibly can. Yeah, I mean, that's what I like uh, a lot about your podcast, how, you know, your own vision uh, and, uh, yeah, how you really go to the deep the deep dimensions of war and peace and conflict and the ethics. And it's, it's really broad. And that's I think that's what you have to do instead of having just maybe security-related uh, analyzes there's there's much more to it uh, uh, human human dimensions and many more things um so you mentioned the last resort as a criteria for just war what are some others uh so there's uh, proportionality uh you know necessity uh you're putting me on the spot now um just trying to think there's there's basically seven uh, seven principles yeah we don't need all the seven. just give um, some idea to the readers they can yeah. check it up also necessity yeah, so that you you're kind of forced to act. You cannot. There, there is, there is, that's right. Yeah. That it's, ne- that it's a necessary war to go and uh, prosecute. Uh, proportionality that it needs. Yeah. Mm. It's another big one. Proportionality. What does proportionality mean? You know, that it needs to be proportionate to the threat. Um, 
yeah so so it's a it's a a big theory that underpins a lot of what we how we study war and how we decide to go to war uh, but i think it's also one that uh, probably deserves a lot more attention uh, particularly by those who ultimately send us to war uh, and i'll just echo again that i'm not i don't disagree with it i think it's the best we've got uh, but i think that it's uh, yeah uh, it, it, it's certainly not as clean cut a solution as we'd like it to be. It, it, in essence, I mean, it, I think the last resort is probably the one that speaks to me the most because I, I, I find mm. it very hard to uh, to look at many of the wars, certainly in our recent past, as being the last resort. Uh, I'm happy to be, you know, convinced otherwise, and this is why I invite people to, you know, speak to me about this, and I'll, I want to ask these questions because I want to because I want I want to answer them for myself. But also for those uh, like myself, and I know there are many, there are many people who ask these questions as well. Uh, but we simply don't don't have those types of discussions and don't get the chance to speak to those people. Um, and I think a podcast is a fantastic medium for that, which is why my podcasts are also, um, you know, as, as you and I spoke offline, I also don't restrict the length of the podcast. You know, some people have said, "Oh, make it," you know, "don't make it too long." Mm. Well, it's I, I I tell my guests that I'm happy to take the, 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 the episode to its natural conclusion. And usually that yeah. falls, you know, between an hour and 15 to an hour and 45, something around there, which I think is, a, you know, is an okay length to allow somebody to open up sufficiently so we can actually get to some depth uh, and actually start exploring some of these questions a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, with a little bit more color and nuance uh, as opposed to sound bites uh, of, you know, wave tops type, mm-hmm. uh, type analysis. Yeah. So yeah, um, maybe the, the touching towards the end, uh, as you rightly mentioned it. So a bit the underlying question, which maybe one of the last questions: um, criterias for for uh, just war uh, is always referring about who comes in, who does what, under which criterias. But can peace be brought from the outside? As in, can it be brought from the outside to a can to it be a imposed? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I, I think um, mediators are an essential piece of the puzzle. Uh, and what I mean by mediators is those who can interpret the problem from both sides and find some common ground that we can start ever so tenderly. You know, ripening the conflict, and there's of course theories on you know uh, uh, on this, on you know literally the term you know ripening of conflicts. Uh, but I think there are there is a particular field in the conflict space, and that is mediation and negotiation, mm-hmm. which is critical to you know whether that whether that negotiation and mediation occurs internally. Of course, at at, at times it does, uh, or whether it comes. From externally, no. uh, it, it, at some point, all wars end. Now, whether that is because you know somebody has been sufficiently uh, uh, overpowered that there is no you know victory uh, to be achieved, uh, or because it's some sort of a stalemate uh, and the conflict is quote unquote ripe enough uh, for peace to ensue, uh, which arguably was the Balkans, um, where of course you know foreign powers had a huge role to play. Uh, but I think it's also important to underline there that geopolitics 
uh, and you know the the great game of chess mm-hmm. has to be unpacked and understood, and we have to be honest about it mm-hmm. to really understand what the machinations are that drive conflict. Uh, and mediators in particular need to understand that because those are the levers that they can then, of course, pull mm-hmm. uh, to allow peace to prosper. Now, yeah. geopolitics aside, you know, it's it's never the powerful and mighty that die in war. It's the people on the ground. And it, I think it it behoves us to work on those, you know, levers in whatever way we can so that lives are not destroyed, utterly destroyed by war and conflict, which is, of course, you know, the highest price one can pay. Indeed. Uh, yeah, you talk about mediators and uh, external internals. So there's, there's the concept of inside the uh, partial mediators, which is an interesting one, I think, especially for those ethical conflicts that you had people from the ground. Yeah. And they're neutral because you compose a neutral team. You know, each one is like partial and insider in, in his or her own community, but then together it forms a neutral team. So that's an interesting approach. And that's the bridges, right? If I understand that correctly, it's it's, it's the it's the first bridges however fragile they are that are built between you know the 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 different social groups uh, and it's That's- upon those bridges that we build ultimately mm. you know stronger structures and ultimately peace and it takes time and you know you have those rotation time is important and it's not we have very often at least in the west we have a linear point of view you know it starts here and it goes here and it goes up like the stock market <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's mostly the time of uh, involvement we have in mind but there's something much more linear and things go back and forth it's maybe bad today it's good tomorrow and you know many peace deals i think it's about i don't have the right figure in mind now it's about 70 percent or something who break again after Two, three, four, five years. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to stay on it and knowing that there are good times, there are bad times, and it's all it's all in a circle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good. Absolutely. So now maybe to conclude uh, about your, your podcast. So you have uh, already many uh, many episodes. You have some more to come. Uh, how about uh, potentially interested contributors? How can they apply? How can they? Is it possible to apply, or how how does it work? How how do you identify the, the contributors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really do encourage people who either would like to be on the podcast themselves because they recognize themselves as, you know, one of these four groups that are described, you know, be they, uh, uh, you know, survivors, prosecutors, researchers, or healers. But of course, even a group that I haven't thought of, uh, I encourage them to, to reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, the Voices of War. Uh, so at, at the Voices of War is my Twitter handle is also uh, on LinkedIn is also on Facebook. Uh, but of course, they can just drop me an email as well, info at thevoicesofwar.com. Uh, and those details are on, on the website. Uh, or they just reach out uh, through LinkedIn, through the group. Um, and of course, if they have somebody in mind who, you know, it may not be them, but they just know of somebody who they would like to hear from. Yeah, yeah I Good encourage time. people to, yeah, give me suggestions. And especially if they can actually link me up. Because one of the hardest things, of course, is to... Um, you know, connect with people, and I and I and I do try hard to find various means and ways and emails and you know, uh, LinkedIn profiles and so on. So far, you succeed quite well, as we can see. So, 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 so far, it's been uh, it's it's been good. Um, but yeah, it's 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 of course that is the challenge is uh, is actually connecting with people, mm. uh, and if somebody can put me in touch with somebody who they'd like to hear from, uh, then of course I very much welcome that. Right. 
Yeah, we also put the uh, different, you know, links and uh, maybe mail and uh, whatever you want. We put it in the in the description of the of the video. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I invite everybody to to share this to interested uh, other people interested in in listening this uh, this video and maybe comment whatever you have to say about what we discussed. You know, so many things. You know, just war. Uh, a bit about mediation, about uh, the situation in the Balkans, whatever, you know, it's always interesting to exchange with, uh, with the community. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Mas. It was really very nice. I really liked it for the first episode. I think it's a good success. It's always easy to auto-evaluate yourself, you know, but <laughs> at least let's say I liked it a lot and uh, I hope you too and I hope also the, the people listening to us. But uh, we touched on so many things. It's really illustrative, and especially for your podcast. So I can just remember the the, the website, The Voices of War, a great podcast uh, from a great person. Thanks, Mas, for doing what you're doing. And um, uh, thanks for the CrossFit in Sarajevo. <laughs> Pascal, thank you so much for giving me the time. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you for letting me talk so much as well as a, as a host. Uh, of a podcast it's often uh you know other people that i invite to talk so uh yeah i really do appreciate you giving me the chance to uh, express some of my own experiences and uh and how i've come to uh you know to start the podcast in the first place so uh yeah thank you so much i hope i hope it helps promoting it a little bit great thank you talk to you soon thank, thank you bye bye Mas.